I don't want to say that Sam is addicted to how he's perceived, but this is a guy who wants to be well-regarded by history. He's come out with this Substack post rebutting a lot of the criticisms that have been leveled at him. And, you know, I think this is just the beginning. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 18th. Today, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Sam Bankman-Fried's unusual communication strategy, talking to reporters at almost every turn and posting online from his house arrest in Palo Alto. And he's doing it even as he faces a frightening legal fate. So what's he up to exactly? Teddy has some thoughts. And later, Bill Cohan chats with Ben Landy about activist investor Nelson Peltz and his proxy war with Disney. Bill digs into whether or not Bob Iger will pay the price for blowing him off. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Shout out to Ben Landy for filling in for me on Tuesday when I was off. I'm joined today by Teddy Schleifer. How you doing, man? I'm well, Peter. Congrats on your Bengals. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Um, I believe that the Bills game should be held at a neutral site next week, but we'll see what happens in Orchard Park. G-E-A-U-X, Bengals. So, Teddy, you posted a, a piece Tuesday that kind of spun off a little bit on your interview with Sam Bankman-Fried, your exclusive interview in his Palo Alto parents' home one of the things he wrote is that he might care more about his legacy and his footprint on the internet than actually winning this case, which actually kind of makes sense to me. Why do you think that? So I don't want to say that Sam is addicted to how he's perceived, but this is a guy who wants to be well-regarded by history. And obviously, if he gets acquitted, that would help. Though I'm not necessarily sure that it would help as much as conventional wisdom would suggest. People get charged with crimes and acquitted and are still sort of these alleged fraudsters or alleged criminals uh, until the end of time. So obviously, Sam McAfee does not want to spend, you know, decades of his life in jail. But you could argue the next nine months, you know, between now and October, when this case is actually going to be held, might matter more for his public perception than anything actually happens in the courtroom. 
ultimately he cares about being seen as the good guy. That was a lot of his appeal uh, to people like me, to regulators, to politicians. So I'm, I'm being a little tongue in cheek when I say I think he cares more about his public perception than being incarcerated for the better part of his life. But I, I do think that, that he cares just fundamentally about perception too much. Uh, and that is what's motivating a lot of his decisions. You know, since we last talked, Peter, you know, he's come out with this Substack post, which is, you know, obviously unconventional, to say the least, rebutting a lot of the criticisms that have been leveled at him over the last couple of months. And, you know, I think this is just the beginning. He's going to be waging uh, a full-scale war to clear his name in the court of public opinion. And whatever happens in the courtroom, whatever, um, that's beyond his control. But you can always post through it. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely posting through it. You're right, too, that he, he really wants to be thought of as a good guy. I actually have right next to me this copy of New York Magazine I'm showing you on the Zoom right now that I picked up when I was traveling over the holidays. Really good issue of New York Magazine, which kind yes. of breaks down like all the tendrils of the story. But the, the cover headline is The Virtue Was the Con. Right now, it feels like the virtue is the cover. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not a bad guy. So can you kind of like break down what he, he was actually posting about in this subsect memo that came out late last week? Sure. So, so the interesting thing about it is he doesn't actually address any of the um, actual charges leveled at him by SDNY. If you read through the Substack post, which is in a very characteristic fashion, you know, comprised of estimates and assumptions and best of my recollections, like things that, you know, would not see the light of day in, in much lower grade scandals that nevertheless are, are posted for the entire world to see in like, you know, the fight of his life. He got unlucky is the gist that the market turned on him. The scheme that he was doing or alleged to have been doing would have worked if only, you know, he had a couple more inches to, to give uh, of cushion. You know, he says explicitly that, you know, he did not steal any money, which is a line that, you know, is sort of just guaranteed to be the, the lead pickup uh, for articles, but, but isn't actually like alleged or backed up in any sort of serious way. I mean, it was meant for journalists. That's the audience. It, it, it was meant to be written about and, you know, sort of give Sam's side of the story in a way that is direct to consumer and is more digestible and readable than something that will be argued, you know, in court file. It's very interesting. I mean, like when, when you think about kind of the history or the future of kind of crisis comms, you know, in, in lawsuits or, you know, actual criminal proceedings like this is, there's sort of two languages that are spoken, right? There's this legalese that, is sort of then translated by reporters into copy or tweets. But that's with a filter, right? Journalists are going to say what they think the most interesting lines are. And then there's the second language, which is being spoken by Sam in this situation, which is very unusual. I think this could be the future. Like, regardless of whether or not Sam is liable, whether he did the crime, didn't do the crime, I do think you're going to see more and more targets of investigations or people just shrouded in any sort of legal imbroglios, like talking about these things openly in a direct consumer way, you get outside of the filter of schmucks like me, and you make the case to me. I don't know if Sam is wrong about that. Like, obviously, there are going to be some legal challenges that posting the Substack memo invites that would not have been incurred otherwise. But I think it's a net positive for people to talk about their controversies, even if it kind of weakens the gatekeeping power of mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump posted through a million controversies and he is under multiple federal <laughs> and state investigations and is also posting through it. Um, and I'm also reminded in this context of 
Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, who is Democrat, was caught in this blackface scandal sheesh, back in like 2018, I think, like the year after he was elected. And he, you know, got up and spilled his guts and, you know, kind of in the the old Mark Sanford way. That was another wild press conference I covered back in, back in the day in 2009 when he was having his affair and hiking the Appalachian Trail. But Ralph Northam was out there being like, I don't remember this. And because he's a Democrat um, and because we were sort of in this moment where identity and political correctness mattered a lot, my assumption was, oh, he's got to resign. And I remember Brendan Buck, who, you know, worked on Capitol Hill at various senior levels. He was texting me because he knows I'm from Virginia. And he was like, do you think he's going to resign? And I was like, yeah, I think he's got to. He's like, why? Says who? Says the media? You know, as long as he's got some political constituency or maybe even not, he can just hang on. That's just a moment I hold on to in the last few years where it feels like we segued into a world where, you know, I don't care what the finger waggers think. I can post through it. I can do what I want. I can have the press conference. I can have the apologetic press conference. Unless they're hauling me off to jail and they might do that with SPF, I can be the governor. So it's interesting to to write about how the, the playbook has changed. And I think we should definitely watch SPF through this. Um, there's another thing you wrote in this piece, Teddy, that jumped out at me too, which was right after the story popped in like November, bunch of Democrats, and he was a prolific giver to Democrats, some Republicans and, and other people at FTX gave to Republicans. But some of these officials and groups that he had donated to then donated their money to charity, which is, speaking of traditional PR, the move. You know, like Chewy Garcia, like the congressman from Illinois is like, oh, I'm giving this to a charity. You know, I don't want to be involved with his money. The problem with that is you're right. is like, it wasn't SBS money necessarily. You know, it wasn't like they got a donation from the American Petroleum Institute and gave to charity. Theoretically, that's some investor's money. Or some FTX customer's money. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, it could have been just some individual's money that is now poof, gone. And so you write that some of these groups that got money and gave it away to charity, joke's on them. They they might have to figure out a way to (laughs) give that money back somehow, and therefore they're paying twice. Right, exactly. I mean, the, the idea of them getting it back from the charity that they donated it to is probably less plausible than basically be them being asked to donate it again to whatever sort of restitution fund FTX sets up for its creditors. So just to keep putting numbers on this, like if you are Chewy Garcia and you got $2,900 from Sam Bankman fried and, you know, in the aftermath uh, of FTX's collapse, you donated that money to some Chicago teachers fund or whatever, because you're trying to wash your hands of any stench and, you know, right, the crisis crumbs playbook says act decisively. But the irony is that waiting could have actually been the better move because ultimately FTX right now is trying to recoup a lot of money that's been donated to political campaigns and to nonprofits. So they could then go to Shui Garcia's campaign, the FTX creditors, and say, we would like $2,900 back. And Shui Garcia would say, I gave it already to the Chicago Teachers Fund. There's a scenario here where then they have to donate $5,800 because there's a 2900 they already donated for, you know, winning the news cycle of November 13th. And then there's a $2,900 that ultimately they will have to give in, you know, September 2023. All right, Teddy, thanks so much, man. Um, keep digging on the story. Of course, you are absolutely one of the best reporters on this beat right now. You bet. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy asked Bill Cohan about Nelson Peltz's proxy war with Disney.
Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan. Hey, Bill. Hey, Ben. Great to be here. Bill, you have been closely following the public and private battle between Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, and Nelson Peltz, the activist investor whose firm just took a sub-billion dollar but still substantial stake in that company. And he's been agitating for change. I'd love to just start briefly with the obvious question, who is Nelson Peltz and why should Bob Iger care about him? Short answer is Nelson Peltz is um, a very distinguished and pretty successful, relentless and ruthless 80-year-old activist investor, sort of in the Carl Icahn generation of activist investors. He's just one of these uh, sort of Wall Street uh, fixtures. And once he fixates on a company or an opportunity, he's relentless until he gets what he wants. The knock on pelts among people in the entertainment industry is basically that he has plenty of complaints about Disney, primarily that it bought the Fox Entertainment assets in 2019 near the top of the market, that it overpaid, which I think everyone can agree on, that he loaded the company up with this debt and then later cut the Disney dividend. The Disney stock, of course, is down just like every other entertainment company that's made big investments in streaming. The question these people have is, what solution is Pelt's bringing to the table? Because if it's just reducing costs and sort of encouraging him to buy out the rest of Hulu from Comcast, well, Disney is already on track to do both of those things. First of all, it's important, I think, to put in the context that Peltz and Tryon are the second activist investor to hit up Disney in uh, 2022 with uh, our friend Dan Lowe being the first at the beginning of the year. He also has about a, you know, a sub billion dollar investment. He has a higher entry point. I think his, you know, average price of purchase is, you know, in the $120 a share range and stock being at $100. So Dan is underwater at the moment. I would assume Dan is glad to have Peltz uh, in there, whose average price per share is around $100. So, you know, that's sort of a push at the moment. Um, You know, Dan uh, has sort of been pushing for many of the same things that Nelson Peltz is talking about, but Nelson Peltz uh, wants a board seat. Dan Loeb didn't ask for a board seat. He asked for candidate that he wanted to be on the board. And actually, Disney uh, agreed to that. They put in a uh, meta employee onto the board who who Dan Loeb had approved. 
Nelson wants to be on the board, and he has um, initiated a very public and noisy and aggressive uh, proxy fight to accomplish that. And, you know, so now it's kind of like all-out war between Bob Iger and Disney and Nelson Peltz. Uh, and, I mean, I guess the good news is that the resolution of that is probably, you know, two months away because uh, even though the date has not yet been set for the Disney annual meeting of shareholders, it's usually in the beginning of March. Uh, and so this is going to go on now for uh, the next two months unless, of course, they reach uh, sort of an, a private accommodation uh, that would put an end to it. You reported that Peltz had been working with Disney for a while to get an audience with Iger, to get an audience with senior leadership, to make his case for being on the board, and that time after time, the Disney C-suite essentially blew him off. They, they entertained him for a little bit with a presentation. It was only 45 minutes. They have rejected his offer to sit on the board. What was Nelson's response to that? And how is Disney taking it? Nelson began uh, in July 2022, and there were many meetings between him and Disney C-Suite. According to the 17-page PowerPoint that Disney filed, there were, quote-unquote, no less than 16 meaningful interactions uh, between Disney and Tryon since July 2022. An interesting new fact was that you know Isaac Perlmutter, who is the chairman of Marvel Entertainment, a shareholder of Disney and an employee of Disney, um, has been sort of working on Nelson's behalf as well. And he asked for a board seat or suggested that Nelson should be added to the board no less than 20 times since July 2022. I'm not exactly sure what the thinking is behind Disney, including this additional information in their filing, because it, you know, it shows that I guess that they entertained uh, many requests uh, from Peltz and his camp to consider putting Peltz on the board, all of which resulted in it not happening and the initiation uh, last week of the proxy fight. So I think the thing that Bob Iger and the folks at Disney or the Disney advisors are failing to understand is that Nelson Peltz doesn't go away. Dan Loeb kind of can go away. Dan Loeb has shown that he'll go away, you know, over time, you know, either after making money or not making money. He just sort of isn't in things necessarily for the long haul, which often has worked to his benefit. Nelson Peltz just is relentless. He's not going to go away. He's either going to get the board seat he wants, and that'll be pretty much a big time negative for Disney, or he will not get the board seat that he wants. And it'll still be pretty much a big time negative for Disney because he creates a disruption uh, and he sort of pits board members against each other. He's just kind of relentless until, you know, he begins to get the things that he wants, which ultimately what he wants, of course, is uh, to make money and a higher share price. And if Disney will do without him the things that shareholders decide they like and, you know, who knows what those things are at this point whether it's sort of, you know, stopping the losing, the gush, gushing loss of money at Disney Plus, or whether it's spinning off ESPN with some of Disney's $50 billion of debt or the Hulu situation you alluded to. 
Who knows what the magic sauce is that gets the stock moving again? But that's basically what uh, Nelson, of course, cares about. So if the stock goes up uh, and he's making money, he's in the money and he doesn't get the board seat, then he'll probably declare victory and move on. If the stock goes up because he gets the board seat or is part of pushing for things as a result of being in the boardroom, then he'll probably declare victory and move on. If the stock doesn't move either with or without a board seat for Nelson, then Bob Iger's uh, next two years are going to be extremely uncomfortable for him. I can understand why maybe Iger thinks that this will all blow over, given that the stock, it's been rising over the last few months. Obviously, it could resume its downward trajectory, but presumably there's some feeling that the correction in these streaming companies or entertainment companies that dabble in streaming, that they have bottomed, that this correction is now moving in the other direction. And I can also understand why Iger must feel like Peltz is an irritant who doesn't bring a lot to the table. If that's pride, it might hurt Iger for the reasons that you were just describing. But I sort of have a hard time imagining Peltz winning a proxy battle with Iger, who is extremely popular and iconic and well-loved within his own industry. Am I underestimating how much disruption Peltz can bring in? Yes, (laughs) You, you are. He's like the Terminator. I mean, this is what he does. Bob Iger does what he does. He, you know, likes the adulation of being the CEO of Disney and having everybody in Hollywood fawn over him and be excited by him. And Nelson Peltz doesn't care what people in Hollywood think of him. Uh, He cares about making money for his investors and for himself. And uh, he's really good at it. And he's not going to stop until he gets what he wants. You have to understand, you know, your enemy here and really understand how he functions. He doesn't hide it because he's done it at P&G. He's done it at DuPont. He's done it at Heinz. He's done it at GE. He's done it over and over and over again. He's 80 years old. He's not changing his stripes at this point. He's going to do what he does. His son is involved and his son-in-law who I know, Ed Garten, is involved, and they're just like apples falling close to the tree. They don't have a different approach than Nelson Peltz. They're not going anywhere. Bob Iger's, you know, who is, you know, the dean of Hollywood at this point, he'd better uh, trot out whatever diplomatic skills he has and reach an accommodation as soon as he possibly can. Do not let this go to March. Do not let this continue uh, any longer than it has. And if that means uh, putting Nelson Peltz on the board, then that's what he should do because I'm sure he can be constructive. He's been around for a long time. He's seen a lot of things. You don't want him at all, obviously, but since you've got him and you're not going to get rid of him either way, you might as well have him inside the tent uh, looking out than outside the tent firing pot shots looking in. Well put. All right, Bill. Well, we'll see what happens and we'll have you back on to explain it all as it unfolds. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 